The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. Uh, my name is Paul Edwards and I, I always keep meaning to ask Larry, so I'll ask him now on the air, whether that's actually a, a, a calliope or is it a... Or is it an, an organ, or what is that? I think it's a calliope. I think it's a calliope. I need to go back and listen, because I just pulled a small section of it, obviously, but and it runs about two or three minutes. So I should go back and find it, but I think it's a calliope. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Yeah. One, doesn't, one doesn't hear those very often. Um, so our usual crew is here, except that so far Mr. Brian is not with us, but I'm sure he'll join us in due course. So... Um, it's a pleasure to welcome Miss Marianne, who will be handling hand raising as the evening goes on. Miss Marianne, your week goes well. My week goes well, Paul. It's good to be here, though. Excellent. And and your puppy is with you. My puppy is right here at my right hand. Excellent. Yes. And Mister um, Rick, are you feeling any better? Uh, well, yeah, kind of, sort of. How are you, Paul? Hi everybody. I'm good, and I'm and I'm and I hope you are kind of sort of feeling better. That would be a good thing. Yep. And uh, Mr. Larry, we have already talked to <clears throat> this evening. Um, I feel very fortunate because I get to do something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time, and um, we waited until an event occurred that made it that made it an obvious thing to do. Um, but I have uh, admired this person from afar and up close for the last 35 years and have truly wanted to get an opportunity to delve some more into um, how she operates, how she grew up. Um, she, has, uh, she has managed to do an amazing number of things in her life, as you will discover. And she has also been very active in a range of things that the American Council of the Blind has been involved in. And it gives me immense pleasure to welcome as our guest this evening, Miss Deanna Quietwater Noriega. Hey, Deanna. Hi, Paul. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. One of the times I remember with you and Brian and I were crossing a sky bridge at an ACB convention. Yes. And I had a very yep. tired German Shepherd because I was running for the Board of Applications. So we had all these ridiculous caucuses because every organization wanted to talk to candidates individually. And even keeping track of where you needed to be when was insane. So I'm walking across the bridge and I'm trying to get my dog to pick up the pace to get to one of these early morning meetings. And so I started singing to him, which always perked that little shepherd up. So uh -huh. I was singing, ACB is lots of fun, but it keeps you on the run. Pick them <laughs> up. And lay them down. Come on, Griffin, go to town. And you started making up wacky verses. And then exactly. you turned to Brian and said, Come on, Brian, get with it. And he's going, It's too early. <laughs> I remember. Yes, it's too early. It's too early. <laughs> there he is. Hello, Mr. Brian. Welcome. 
Although with Brian, the secret story I have on him is when he came to a convention in the state where I happened to be, and he was working a German shepherd who didn't want to eat because sometimes they don't when they're under stress. And I had a German shepherd. So he said, would you come up to my room and stand there with your German shepherd watching my German shepherd eat so I can get back down in time to to get to the thing I have to go to. And I said, oh, well, sure. You know, I had, I get that. <laughs> I've had shepherds. So that's what we did. Griffin and I stood in the doorway of his uh, room and watched his dog eat. <laughs> How cool yeah, they, is that? They defend that bowl. You know, they say, well, it's not that I'm going to get angry at you, but clearly this is mine. And that is yeah, more important. Not, yeah, yeah, you're not invited to partake. <laughs> Yeah, I suspect I suspect that Brian's known Deanna as long as I have, huh, Brian? Mm, much longer, I think. Yes. Really? Keep wow. in mind that Deanna started her uh, involvement, involvement with yeah. ACB and the like in her Oregon days. Nice. So, so I, I met yeah. him when she was state president. <laughs> yep, back in the day. Back in yeah. the day. And That's she awesome. had, even at that that young age, she was an amazing leader because the first thing she did when she was introduced to me by um, someone who was a greeter at the door as a newcomer, you know, um, it took me over to introduce to me to Kim where she was standing. And she pulled me aside and spent about 10 minutes quizzing me on who I was and what I was interested in. And the next thing I knew, I got a... Uh, a message from her saying, I've got two commitments. Could you go to the women's conference at the University of Eugene? It's closer to you. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. And there you she called me into the organization, even though I'd shown up at that convention at not knowing anything about ACB or OCB, because my church used to have once a month meals for the elderly visually impaired. And um, when they, you know, finished cleaning up the lunch and everybody was getting their rides home, I had, I walked home, but um, they said, um, okay, now volunteers stay behind. We need to do some planning for next month. And so I stayed because I figured, and she says, oh, no, honey, you don't have to stay. Um, It's just for the volunteers. And I said, well, I'm offering to volunteer. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, they gave me a hundred dollars to go to the convention because they'd heard about it and they wanted me to go and find out about it and come back and tell tell the group so i got to be the speaker at the next luncheon <laughs> how cool is that i'll tell so you you know that with the minute you start showing your skills and your passion and you're in acb definitely your communication skills then those who are looking for uh, future, maybe next week, future leaders, um, <laughs> we can, we can sniff them out. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we learn Deanna's to do that with each everything. other. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we do that to each other all the time. Because I remember when I was president of the Rogue Valley chapter, and um, a veteran who was getting his first dog from GDB called me and said, I know you use guide dogs. Um, 
who, which vet do you use and why? So I answered his questions about that, and I invited him to the next Rogue Valley chapter meeting with me. And I said, because you're a first-timer, we'll even buy you lunch. So he and his dog showed up, and uh, I took him over to my table of the veterans and sat him down, and they were swapping war stories and talking and so forth. And John Fleming innocently sat down and, and they were all having a great time. I've, you know, called the meeting to order and uh, we were trying to fill offices for an election and nobody wanted to run. So I pulled a Khrushchev and took my shoe off and banged the table and said, all right now, there you go. either you want an organization or you don't because I can't do it all. You know, I run a business. I've got kids. You've got time. And you've got talents. So I want to see people step up. And somebody raised their hand and said, I nominate John Fleming for whatever it was we were trying to do. <laughs> and John hadn't even joined yet. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, sure. And they said, okay, John, see me after the meeting and be <laughs> So we elected him at the very so first John, meeting he came. So John Fleming... Um, is no longer with us, but he is oh. famous in ACB as being um, one of the one of the ACB people who was most instrumental in demonstrating that blind people can and should and do skydive. Yes, and he did it as a fundraising gimmick for a couple of times for OCB. Yep. Uh, yep. So yeah, yep. and uh, eventually so, he was president of that chapter. And <laughs> yep. Yeah. So let's let's start from the very beginning, Miss Diana. Where were you actually born? I yes, was born in Martinez, California, um, nice. almost in a movie theater. My parents had gone up to Martinez uh, because they had it the one of the first Technicolor movies in 1948, and uh, they were watching a Robin Hood movie. And I don't know who was in it or anything about it. Errol Flynn. <laughs> but my mother went into labor and her water broke. <laughs> and so, so my father said, can't you wait till the movie's over? And she said, no, my water just broke. And so they <laughs> ended up going out. And, and my father told their friends that they'd ridden up with, it'll be okay. I'll, I'll, you can come over to the hospital, just finish the movie and tell me what happened. So we, we, the three of us then go out and catch a cab. And the cab driver looks at my 17-year-old mother and says, you, I've, I've driven a cab for 30 years. I've never delivered a baby and I'm not going to do it now because he wouldn't take us back to um, San Francisco because my father was stationed at the Presidio. Mm -hmm. And so he dropped us at the uh, county hospital, and I was born about 15 minutes after we arrived. So I was eager to get started. <laughs> you were. And and um, you guys, um, your dad, I guess, was a service person? Mm -hmm. He was an on-com. Um, right. He mustered out after his 20-year mark, I think, as a master sergeant. Nice. And um, did... 
when when you started out did you did you guys basically live on a reservation or did you live sort of out in in the world as it were actually we lived close to the reservation off and on um throughout my childhood but my mother was born on the reservation but mm-hmm. her father was um a chief in his young years and he fought the government too much and was pretty much told to pack up his white wife and kids and boogie on down the road. They wanted someone more, uh, less confrontational. And mm-hmm. being that he was six foot eight and could have posed outside of a cigar store <laughs> with a very, very prominent, you know, mm-hmm. hawk nose and black eyes and uh, he was so intimidating that in World War II, he served, um, even though he was in his 40s at that time, and already had, um, they'd had eight children by then. They took him anyway, and they had to specially make his boots and uniform because he was so big. <laughs> they How put cool him is in, that? They yep. put him in the uh, the MPs. Because he could break <laughs> up a bar fight faster than anybody just by walking in and mm-hmm. and roaring at the people. <laughs> and, you know, picking you know, up the he, drunks one under each arm and walking out again. <laughs> yep. What a contrast between your diminutive stature and his. <laughs> how, how was your mother? Is she a- My mother's about, well, she was about an inch taller than I am. She was the smallest of the 10 children my grandparents had. And um, most of the girls were at least 5'8", and the boys were well over 6 feet, ranging from 6'2 to about 6'4". None of them reached um, his height. But his wife was only, um, my grandmother was only four foot 11. <laughs> so I actually favored her in, yep. in yep. height. And I also, rather than having black hair, have um, auburn with copper highlights, you know, prominent against the dark brown. So um, now those are starting, starting to <laughs> turn silver now that I'm 75. There you go. So as a as a kid, did 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 you feel uh that your involvement with the reservation and and with Indians was a, was a kind of a positive experience for you? Oh yes, definitely. Because the culture of our people is communal. Um and everybody has contributions to make from the smallest to the oldest. And everybody is recognized for who they are. Um, so that in our way of thinking, if the maker made you a particular way, that's the way you're meant to be. That's why we didn't hold prejudices before the missionaries tried to instill a, a different ethics on us that gay people were as the maker made them they were two-spirit people born in the wrong body and that made the third leg of the stool that supported 
the people because you had to have the female leg, the male leg, and the two-spirit leg who could understand both of the other two. And so Uh that was the balance that was needed for the community. And so when my great-grandmother gave me the name Shanigamukwe, it means a day when the sun is shining and the lake is quiet and there's blue sky and it's such a perfect day that you can take a birch bark canoe out on Lake Michigan and go fishing safely. And now, now that's one heck of a name. Yeah. You don't want to try to put that on a credit card. <laughs> no, 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 no. So um we anglicized, my brothers and I made the decision when we were young, that we would anglicize our um, Ojibwa names and use them um, rather than a part of our birth record name, which was for the government's benefit. Because, of course, when we were forced to write down our names for government roles we didn't have last names we had clan names we had um, pet names we had joking names we had you know and then our true name which was who we were as a person and so my great-grandmother was telling me that I was perfect a perfect sunny day perfect person and as a child then I never felt broken. Right. And my mother was very brave. She was young to have a, to be starting to raise children. By the time I lost my vision, she was 25 and I had two younger brothers. And um, it's the time after my parents divorced that we returned to the area of the reservation when he was shipped to Germany and she made a run for it because he had a traumatic brain injury in Korea and he was violent. So she saved up tip money waiting tables and when he was on maneuvers just before shipping out, um, she ran away with us and the army arranged for the divorce because in his peek at her behavior he got himself into trouble in germany with a local girl (laughs) so they expedited the divorce so they could marry the other girl there you go so the my book doesn't include that part i have them it all of the stories in it are real stories that actually Mm -hmm. we did or happened to us but it's been fictionalized quite a bit and i have the father in my story, not come back from Korea. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I always thought I always thought that you were blind all the time, but not, huh? No, I could see until I was eight and a half. But my mother—that's another thing with, that is different. Um, she was so observant about me that when I was four months old, she took me to the base um, to have my eyes examined because she said. There's something wrong. She sees me, but when I move from shadow to sun, bright sun, she cries. There's something wrong. And the eye doctor 
that she was sent to diagnosed congenital glaucoma at that time. And mm -hmm. she said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, with drops and care, we can prevent her from going blind for quite a long time. But I would say that she will probably be totally blind when she's about 10. And being precocious, I managed it at eight and a half. <laughs> yep. So yep. He told her that she had some hard decisions to make. That he, her temptation would be to protect me and keep me from doing anything that might cause me to be hurt. And he said, you can't do that because she's a child. And she needs to be a child, and she needs to do the things children do. So treat her as you would any child, and let her figure out what she can and can't do, and what she wants to do and what she doesn't. And he said, that's the only advice I can give her, because she is herself, and she will find her way. But if you limit her because you're afraid then she will become completely dependent on you and she will never be able to care for herself or make a life for herself and you will have her in your care until you're gone and then she'll be unable to care for herself and go so into an institution between the time that you were born and the time that you were eight and a half was your vision getting worse every year mm -hmm. when i was nice. three my great-grandfather taught me to read, so mm -hmm. I could read the, the larger print in the little golden books they used to sell at the right, grocery right, store. Right. And I could read, he started out with teaching me the alphabet by turning the pages of his big family Bible and asking me to find A's and B's and C's. And eventually he would read <clears throat> to me from the Bible and run his finger along the line as he said the words and um so pretty soon i could recognize some of the words so if i did i would say them with him like and god mm -hmm. said you know, whatever mm -hmm. nice. you know and so <clears throat> it was kind of just a game i played with my grandfather that taught me to read nice excellent the, i'm always amazed at the parallels that happen in, in people's lives and Deanna, I don't remember if you knew that Kim's cause of blindness is juvenile glaucoma. Mm. And no, that, I uh, didn't. I remembered yours that you were even older yeah, than than I was when you lost your vision. Yeah, I was eleven. Eleven yeah. in a in a household mm -hmm. chemical accident. But Kim's was juvenile glaucoma, which decreased her vision each year. And went through lots of surgeries to try to relieve that pressure. Yep. The young body heals too quickly for most of those procedures to have any lasting effect. Yeah, I had three uh, that of kind them. Of thing. Yep. And, and uh, did you ever have to drink <laughs> glycerin? I don't remember. I remember all of the treatments seemed to be bizarre and, and uh, you know, weird to me. But... Um, the last one, I'd already lost all the vision in one eye. And of course, it was the better one <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to be, yeah, because of an accident. 
and then um, they were trying to do something with the, the less stable eye. And I think I must have had a retinal detachment during the surgery because I went in with still some usable um, uh, mobility vision. I mean, I could see mm-hmm. if it was big enough, I could see it. Um, but when I came out, I had nothing. Yep. yep. Pretty scary. So <clears throat> we haven't talked about your book yet, and we should probably do a little of that. <laughs> let's let's start first with the first book. You wrote, this is your second book. Tell us mm-hmm. about your first book. My first book, <laughs> I'm a, a rather timid writer. Um, I don't usually send my stuff out to publish. I usually just write because that's what I do with the things that are rattling around in my overly active brain. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, so it's kind of like my own form of inexpensive psychotherapy. <laughs> if I'm upset about something, mm-hmm. if I'm hurt or sad or angry or confused, I'll turn it into a poem, a story, or an essay. And then they just sit there <laughs> in in boxes of Braille or in, <laughs> on my computer eventually. Um, but every now and then, um, I'll see a call for submissions or something. And I remember one of the earliest ones I did was a story for a contest at our special magazine oh yep. no and um my mother uh you know has always liked whatever i wrote and i finished some weeks before that a story to bring up the topic of my attending a mother's day at school with my little girl mm-hmm. and she was of my two children she was the one that was most sensitive about the fact that everywhere we went we got stared at (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, she got really upset at uh, when i took her back to school to have or took her to the health department to get uh, a note to say that she was clear of chicken pox and could go back to school even though she had some you know un on uh, some Run, yeah right some, unyield sores yep. yeah they mm-hmm. were scabbed over and she mm-hmm. didn't have any new outbreaks so i thought she was finished but i wanted the teacher or the teacher to know that she was not infectious mm-hmm. and so we went there and we were sitting there in the, in the waiting room waiting for our turn to be seen and um she says said mommy i just hate it i just hate it we get stared at everywhere we go and i said well why do you think they're staring honey is it because of your chicken pox or my guide dog or and she said i don't care why mommy i just hate it (laughs) (laughs) my younger child has always been my defender and Mm -hmm. so for angeline she you know was she was um, home with now a cold, 
and I was saying, poor kid is going to get so far behind in school. So anyway, mm-hmm. I sat down and wrote a story about it because I'd just gotten the, the notice that they were asking um, mothers to do something for a school party. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a little story about a, a witch, a, a little witch <laughs> who was six and was worried about having her mom come to the Halloween carnival <laughs> because, you know, witches are very different from other mommies. <laughs> of course they are. So um, I wrote this story and Jean Neal was the editor of our special at that time. And she loved it. And she said, I'm going to publish it, but I'm writing this letter to you so that you have proof that I have left you the copyright. I won't claim it for our special because I want you to find some place else in a broader market to publish it. So that was my, you know, but I'd been writing since I think I won my first $10 prize in a print book when I was in the fourth grade for writing an essay about the president. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, I have always written, but I'm not really good at putting things out there. Um, so I had a lot of material. I have five or six partial books on my computer right now. And I, my mother was turning 90 during the time of COVID in 2021. And I had a manuscript in draft. And I was thinking about looking for a publisher because um, I'd gone to, I think, the 75th anniversary of um, the founding of the Seeing Eye. They had a grads gathering. Uh-huh. And um, they were talking about the expense of training a guide dog and the failure rate of having, you know, dogs that that don't make it through because of one problem or another, the complexity of traffic and all of this stuff. And the, you know, for society, white canes seem so much cheaper and easier. And I thought about that. And I thought about the value my dogs had been. And so I started compiling pieces in trying to get them in some kind of chronological order from when I went to get my first dog between high school and college mm-hmm. up to the dog. You know, by the time I got there, it took me about 15 years to put it together. <laughs> um, and then I didn't do anything with it. But I thought, okay, um, about a year before that, I started making query letters to university presses because I thought maybe a university that had a veterinary department and a psychology department might be interested in a book about Mm -hmm. the relationship of a guide dog and a handler. And realistically, they're dogs first and they're exceptionally bright and chosen for the right temperament. But they are, um, they're more than a mobility aid. They're somebody in your corner that thinks you walk on water. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. even when the world 
tries to minimize you or make you less than you are, um, somebody believes in you. And that's a great thing. It is. So um, I thought, well, this is the one that's ready to go to an, an editor for cleanup and formatting because it, it had been building over a period of time and the crashing of several computers and so forth. So a lot of it was, was very old in, in Braille manuscript and I'd eventually put it on a computer and put it all together from beginning to end. And um, I thought I was done with it. But the first letter I got back from a university press was almost as big as the book <laughs> with oh what they wanted from me. They wanted a crazy, they wanted a chapter, they wanted yada, 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 including um, where I thought, which courses I thought it could best be used in. Oh, my goodness. And I got overwhelmed. <laughs> it was, you know, it wasn't quite as thick as my book. I'm exaggerating. But it just seemed overwhelming. So I put it aside and said, well, I'll think about it tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. And so when I realized that my mother was going to be turning 90 and in February of 2021, and it was November, and I was depressed because I couldn't see my latest great-grandchild, who was only 15 miles away, um, because both his mother and his father had COVID, and his mother-in-law had COVID. Dear. So I couldn't go anywhere near them because my husband has multiple pre-existing health conditions. And I was being very careful to um, do all of the things outside of the house except his medical appointments. Mm -hmm. And even those, you know, kind of dried up during the worst of COVID if you weren't, you know, they weren't even yeah. taking people into hospital for, for non-essential surgeries mm -hmm. at that time. Exactly. So I didn't want to fly out to Michigan and, or to, from, from Missouri to California where my mother was living and chance exposing her to COVID or my stepfather. So I was feeling really down. And then because <laughs> it's what I usually do is, okay, there's nothing you can do about COVID. There's nothing you can do to make it possible for you to go safely to see mom on her birthday. What can you do? You know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. What can you do? And I thought, I can write a book and dedicate it to my mom and to the people who train guide dogs. And I can get it printed and in her hands by her birthday. So I went to a uh, company that um, helps authors by doing the editing, doing the cover design, doing the um, the work of getting it up on Amazon in their 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 Kindle version, 
mm-hmm. and also puts it up on Smashwords to make it more accessible for the visually impaired who mm-hmm. maybe want to read it on a Word or EPUB or mm-hmm. um, text document instead. And um, I sent it to her at the end of November and said, is it possible to get this done in time to get my mother a print copy by her birthday? And she said, oh, yeah, we can do this. It's not really that long. And I can I can guarantee we can get it done at the beginning of January. That'll give you plenty of time to get a print on-demand copy sent. And so I had it sent to my brother so he could take it over on my mother's birthday. He lived two doors down from my um, stepfather and my mom and put it in her hands. And I used the photograph of me at the uh, <laughs> at the seeing eye with my um, beautiful shepherd that I was working at the time, my ninth dog. Huh? And um, so <laughs> there I was at the seeing eye and uh that's a story in itself because (laughs) my uh the photographer is the uh director of student affairs there at the seeing eye um and so she had it on a high digital you know quality camera and they built this platform that goes up and down (laughs) like a like a lift you're right bring the dog up to the right height to be level with um your waist and 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 you know bringing its head up near your head and so that you they can take the photograph and she was so excited about my braid wraps and my cherokee style skirt and my turquoise jewelry that i was wearing that she kept asking me questions and my poor dog went up above my head and i'd say angela and she would hit the button and lower it, uh, sorry, lower it. And then she'd ask <laughs> another question. He'd be down at the floor again. I'd say, Angela. <laughs> so this happened four or five times. So my dog is doing a perfect sit state, but he's terrified by this time. <laughs> he doesn't know what's happening. Uh, but I, I said, now, stop. <laughs> and she stopped him at my waist height. And I put my arm around his shoulders. And he's looking straight at her at the camera, not moving for fear of, you know, falling off the platform or whatever. Right. So he looks very focused and intent instead of scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a pretty picture. And mm-hmm. um, we used that for the cover of the book, which is titled 50 Years of Walking with Friends. And um, is it still available? Uh huh. It's still up there on Amazon. And I even got... Um, a college professor somewhere in Florida who teaches um, BTIs. And she asked me, could she use it for her students? Because she wanted them to understand that blind people are individuals, you know, and because Mm -hmm. I included a lot of the different jobs I'd held and things I'd done uh, accompanied by seeing eye dogs. And and so that was that was intended to be read by everybody, mm-hmm. um, and and was and was written primarily for for I guess it would be fair to say for adults, right? Mm-hmm. 
But your second book is a little different because you have decided that you have some things that you want kids to understand. So your second book has to do with with or is is designed to be read um, by children. Did you have to prepare yourself any to write a children's book or or oh, no. did it just it's, come naturally? I've been writing things for my own children and for Sunday school classes and for one of the funniest ones that I wrote was because my daughter had worked for over a year to get all these different symbols into a hat band for one of the uh, um, lawyers in the district attorney's office where she was mm -hmm. working as a witness preparer. And she said, Mom, I'm so, you know, it was so complicated to graph it and get it all to come out and look nice. She said, it, it's taken me a year and I really feel bad because he, he wa you know, wanted this cat band made. So can you write a story using all these symbols in it to go with it? So I did. <laughs> nice. Nice. So <clears throat> children's stories were, were something that you, that you feel comfortable with. Is there, is there a special technique that you have to, that you have to use when writing for kids? I don't think so. Not if you're a child at heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I have had a hard time growing up. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think that's true with a lot of us. One, sto one story I can share is um, when I was fairly newly married, we were still taking college classes. We hadn't graduated yet. We were in our last year. And um, we went to the grocery store. But we were living on a really tight budget. And so we only allowed ourselves $20 a week for groceries. And my husband made the comment as we're going down an aisle, oh, they have those windmill cookies you like. And I think, I know those cookies. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the Dutch spice cookies. Yeah. With a little almond. Uh, yes, exactly. Like some, yeah. yeah. They're wonderful cookies. So anyways, oh, I want some. And he says, it's not on the list. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I said, I want a cookie. And he says, they're not on the list. And I said, I started stamping my foot. Going, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And this man <laughs> walked by and he said, buy the little girl a cookie for God's sakes. My husband says, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> but we, I got the cookies and I said, deal. I get cookies this week. Next week, you choose something that's not on the list. That's a, that's a good way to do it, actually. That and is I, a good way to do it. Because, yeah, I recognize that I can't have everything I want. But they were windmill cookies, for God's sakes. <laughs> Exception should be made for windmill cookies. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So the title, the title of your new book is "Dogwood Blossom: Growing Up Native American." Mm -hmm. So if and you want, I've got a, a a chapter that talks about um, how she got her name. Um, Very good. It's a it's a We'd chapter it. where they're trying to name a puppy they've rescued when a neighbor puts it out and to the snow because it's a runt. Let's do it. 
of the chapter's title. It's the sixth chapter in the book. It's it's um, what's in a name. Lisa slipped from bed quietly so as not to wake Mama. Mary Swan always slept very hard and didn't wake easily. Lisa, as the oldest child, had gotten into the habit of sleeping with one ear open to hear if Mike or Ryan had a nightmare or a midnight tummy ache. So she was the one to hear the whimpers when the puppy needed to be fed in the night. Unstocking clad feet, she scampered into the living room to where the puppy slept, tucked into Ryan's old fleece-lined slipper near the oil-burning stove. Most of its heat seemed to disappear up in the attic, and on nights when the temperature dropped into the teens, you had to be within six feet of it to feel yeah. any warmth in the old house. Before going to bed, Lisa had mixed up a batch of powdered milk, heating the powder with, uh, beating the, the powder with a hand-cranked egg beater until it frothed. If he used warm water to help the chalky stuff mix and then put it into the icebox to get it cold enough, it wasn't too bad. It never tasted quite the same as the milk from a carton that you got at school, but it was much cheaper and could be stored for a long time. The puppy didn't seem to notice any difference because he eagerly drank it down until his tummy was full. Using a funnel, Lisa carefully filled the baby doll bottle and put it in a pan of water to warm up on the stove. By now, the puppy's yells were getting more insistent. She hurried back into the living room to scoop him up. Mike came stumbling in from his bedroom, rubbing his sleep from his eyes. Whose turn is it to feed him? he asked. Ryan's, but I thought I'd get the milk warm and then let him hold the puppy and the bottle once everything was ready. Good idea, said Mike. We haven't given the little guy a name yet. What about Spot? He has all those spots. Do you have any ideas? Well, a name should tell something about the person or the animal. Grandma Emma picked dogwood blossom for me because she said I was so small and sweet. When she first saw me as a baby, she chose Soaring Hawk for you because when you were hungry, you were so fierce and didn't seem to be down here with the rest of us once you got fed. I was thinking that puppy's mostly belly when he's just been fed. He's so round, you know. I was thinking we should name him after that satellite thing the Russians sent into space. But if you like, we could sort of combine the two and call him Sput Spotnik. We can call him Nicky for short. Sounds good to me, <laughs> said Mike and yawned. Okay, so that's just a, a piece of that chapter. And that's, that's how excellent. the puppy got his name. Yes. And, and Dogwood Blossom got hers. Yep. Now, is this is this book available on Amazon as well? Mm -hmm. As a Kindle version. And it's available, again, with, through Smashwords. Um, I'm 
going to try to record a version on my computer for my grandchildren um, that are too young to read. <laughs> or mm -hmm. actually, um, yeah, and then I'm sending print copies to my grandchildren, my nieces, and, um, you know, different members of the family. It's going to Him be exciting knowing that you were going to be the guest tonight to contact her because she and her studio at the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library would be honored if they had the opportunity to have it recorded and made available. Well, that would be lovely for because um, <laughs> the only reason I was doing that is, tr you know, um, I ordered extra copies and I was going to approach my local library to maybe um, sometime after the beginning of the year um, do a, a story hour. I've done one before with um, reading a story to the children and helping them make rain sticks um, out of, you know, paper rollers. <laughs> there you go. Well, again, Deanna, it, it's, a, it's a serious offer. So yep. if you would be interested, just reach out well, to That'll be lovely. So Deanna and I actually read... To... Go ahead. Go ahead, Brent. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was a way, because I always like a, a book read by the author when I can get it, that uh, they might be able to capture your voice to do it. They would do these audio engineering and all the things necessary to get it NLS approved and available through NLS. Well, that's, you know, that it didn't seem to me that um, since you have to get, I guess, if um, you if went to the meeting last night for the quarterly patron uh, thing, um, mm -hmm. the way a book gets on the NLS listing is if it gets a lot of requests for it from patrons. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, but it works the other way around, too, because <laughs> NLS's collection is augmented by things recorded and meeting quality standards by right. NLS-affiliated libraries. And Kim's library has a significant three-booth studio that's very active, and uh, all of theirs has been accepted through NLS for availability uh, on BARD, etc. My so, state library is about 30 miles away, and that wouldn't be a problem if, if I, you know, approached them to record it. But I don't have transportation to go that far on a regular basis to read. Right. Because um, right. Curtis just isn't driving that far. Understood. Understood. The internet's an amazing place, though. <laughs> yeah. It is. So, so, one of my memories of you over the years, you had made reference to your uh, jewelry that you wear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, do you ever do you ever mention any of that in your writing? Um, not in this one so much. Just that. Um, in Christmas Pickles, which is one of the chapters that appeared in, in um, the first uh, Behind Our Eyes anthology that 
my larger writing group that I belong to, um, started meeting on Sunday nights in 2006. And I went to one of the early ones, and 27 of us um, submitted pieces for an anthology. And there was an editorial team where different writers in the group looked at the pieces and then we got some outside opinions and um, put together the first anthology and 10 of my poems, stories, and essays went into that one. And that's available from um, Bard as a recorded version and and a uh, Braille book as well. And it's titled? <laughs> Behind Our Behind- Eyes. Behind our eyes, and and the 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 second one, I'm I'm trying to remember if the second one is just available on Bookshare or if I've seen it on Bard. It's on um, Artist only in audio. Yeah, and yep. then our third one has just launched, just come out. We haven't done a uh, one of our in-home book launch, which is one service we offer. Um, writers is a chance to practice being a writer <laughs> mm-hmm. where we have an interview um, and uh, as if you were going on a television show or a radio show or whatever and it's to practice so that we don't come across stumbling over our tongues <laughs> which mm-hmm. I would be terribly likely to do if it weren't for the fact that we're such a um, supportive group for each other. Um, mm-hmm. I belong to the, the large organization, of course, but I also belong to a five-member um, in-depth critiques group. And they saw um, each piece of um, this book, my second book, mm-hmm. um, as I finished getting them the way I wanted them. And, and did they actually <laughs> did they actually make some editorial suggestions or Oh sure. Um Yep. Marsha is my go-to gal for correct punctuation and grammar. She was a journalism mm-hmm. major and worked in the field for a while. Mm-hmm. Um Leonard and Sally Rosenthal are in the group. They're both excellent writers. Sally is a particularly good writer of poetry. And uh Leonard has a vivid imagination that goes off in all directions like mine does. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And uh, Cleora is our down-to-earth realist gal that tells me when it doesn't make sense to her and she didn't understand this or she didn't understand that. You know, needs clarification. <laughs> so um, because we are all different, it, um, it helps to have a a group that are writers and that will look at your work and tell you when it needs work <laughs> in a nice way. And that seems to be the way that a lot of writers are are preparing books anymore. Um, if you if you look at the the acknowledgments, and I I I've got to tell you that one of the first things I read in a book is the acknowledgment section. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more people are talking about uh, the the folks, particularly the writers who 
who have actually spent quite a lot of time um, working with folks um, to to, um, to 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 help make their books better. And it's not that it's not that anybody believes that that folks can't can't write. It's that it appears that that kind of of input um, uh, helps people broaden some of the notions that they have or change some of the ways that they might present stuff. So um, I guess you would you would buy into that, Ms. Deanna, that 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 kind of a small group really does help to make your writing better? Yeah. Well, because, for example, if I say something and somebody has a question about it because they didn't understand the my what I was trying to convey, then obviously I need to look at it again and say, okay, too much of this um, is in my head. It's not it's not clear enough for a reader that hasn't walked that path before. Exactly. Exactly. I'm curious. Um, these are, would you call your books self-published? Yes. Because, um, again, the second one wouldn't have gotten published at all, except that um, my mother was going to be turning 92 this year. And well, right. turned ninety two in February. I went to see her in April, and she was then in an assisted living uh, facility. She was pretty much bedridden. Um, she was being well cared for, which I knew would would be the case because my brother lives two doors down from her, and um, my stepfather adored her. But she was almost totally aphasic, so I would call her on Saturdays. And I could tell she was still in there because when I would talk about this book that I was working on and remind her of the incidents that I was writing about, I she would giggle sometimes. Yep. And every now and then she, uh, when I would, um, you know, say... Uh, that I, you know, had to get off the phone now because of the <laughs> the wet clothes need to be moved into the dryer, Mama. Call you next week, um, and I would sing this little parody of um, the "Bye Bye Birdie" song, um, where the girls sing, um, "We love you, Birdie." Yeah, we, yep. yeah, we 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 look. Uh, no, it's not Birdie. What did they call him? We love you, uh, Alfie. Yeah. Alfie. Yeah, right. Alfie. Is the is yep. the, and I would sing, you know, I love you, Mama. Oh yes, I do. Um, and she would sometimes sing back, "I love you, a bush, a bushel and a peck," <laughs> because she go. could still sing even though she couldn't get the sounds to <laughs> cooperate to say words, and she could if you gave her enough time. Um, she would say things like, "My good little girl." love you yep um there you go so Tough, but i could see it was getting harder and harder she had copd severe arthritis uh she had had several mini strokes and that at 92 i wasn't going to have her much longer yep so gotcha. i thought okay i'll write 
I'll finish this book up that I've been playing with about my childhood and I'll get it to her on my birthday because um, on my birthday, it's been my practice to call my mother if I can't be with her and sing her happy birthday to us <laughs> because nice. it was my birthday, but it was also her first day giving birth. That's right. There you go. So um, I would either try to spend my birthday or hers with her, and I wasn't going to be able to make it for her um, 93rd birthday. And uh, since I'd already gone to see her in April and not on mine, mm -hmm. so I thought she would like to have a new book. So, so does the, when does you the do children's this kind book... of. Go ahead, Paul. Go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Finish. Mr. Ryan, I, I'm, I'm, go. I'm, again, this whole concept of self-publishing, mm -hmm. one of the problems that um, people I know who've written memoirs of, of their life is this, that, or the other thing, um, is that NLS only does it when it's reviewed in other publications favorably. Um, yeah, That used much. to be one of the standards. So... When it's a self-published one, um, the road toward getting your book accessible is not uh, particularly casual. But to self-publish doesn't usually come free. How have you been financing these books? Because, you know, I've always been thrifty and my, um, my editorial um, you know, and uh, formatting and cover design and all of that stuff is, is handled by uh, DLD Books. And they are very good at what they do. They are both authors themselves. And I think David has um, like three times as many as, as Leonor, but she's the one that does the editing. He does the cover design. And for this book, because it was a children's book, she spent quite a while looking up Shutterstock photographs that we could use mm -hmm. to illustrate the different chapters and make the book attractive. So they do work really hard at making what they put up for us very professional or as professional as they can. And they're good at it. He, wa he was being published by presses, but he got so tired of the battle of getting it through to production, taking one to two years, and then royalties coming in extremely slowly because of all the the in the overhead costs. And he's somewhat technical, so he started publishing his own books. Mm -hmm. And then friends would say, "Would you take a look at mine and see whether it's?" publishing worthy and mm -hmm. they started helping people to do it and they keep their costs very very low when they know that you are a visually impaired person so they've got quite a few books up there on on their website that are um high quality um books whether any of us will ever do a breakthrough to a publisher being interested um, but because we are the person that published it, 
when you're self-published, you don't, nobody owns your book but you. Right. Because they only charge a a fee for the hours they put in. Right. And do they they handle the copywriting as well? Um, Yes. They make sure you have an ISBN number and all of that. Um, As I said, they're very professional and because they've done it for themselves, they know how mm-hmm. to get it done. Now, it's and, a print-on-demand mm-hmm. service? Yes. That's what KDP does. Yeah, the print-on-demand. Gotcha. So you didn't have no... to buy a certain number to no, start out No, I didn't have with. to buy any if I didn't want to. There you go. That, that was the way that it used to be. You had to buy a certain number, and that's what made self-publishing so much more expensive than it is now. Oh, yeah, and there's a lot <laughs> of stuff out there. I've been getting calls from some company in California. F- started two days after it went up online. Mm-hmm. This guy kept calling me to, to tell me that he wanted to have my book for his booth in in an international book festival in guadalajara mexico Mm -hmm. right and i'm thinking um he said you're up for a prize from such and such yeah and i'm going no i wouldn't be up for a prize unless i'm in a category that gives prizes and so they look at everything that's published but as a self-published book i don't think so so I never answered his calls because I think he was wanting me to put some money into putting his company there in Guadalajara and paying for the booth to have my book. Exactly. There. Exactly. And, uh, so he was going to cut his, his overhead and nothing much would come of it. I think that's right. I think so that's right. That's what, but I've still been getting the company now from this magazine that he quoted that's that wants to talk to me i may answer that call but i haven't decided because i think it's all part of the same group because anybody can put up a magazine i mean we have a magazine um in the behind our eyes organization where we publish um works from people with disabilities but it is competitive to get mm-hmm. in we don't pay for anything occasionally we'll have a contest and there'll be a cash prize for first and second place in various categories and we do have um people like um oh shoot i'm, I'm blanking i'm tired <laughs> my day starts very early so but this time i'm yep. getting winding down um well nolan crab is doing um a review for us right now of of book reviews and that's excellent we had a a guy that uh used to be um executive director and editor of dialogue dialogue when it was still a running magazine nice nice so we do have you know outside good people people. yeah come in and um judge our contests we don't judge those um, we're gonna we're gonna spend a little bit more time talking about uh, your childhood if we can, and then we're gonna sure. open it up because I suspect there are some folks who may have questions. <clears throat> but before we go back to your childhood, give us a quick 
pricey of some of the jobs that you've done so that people will have an idea of questions they can ask you about? <laughs> um, I think I've been working since I was about 14 at something. Mm -hmm. I ran a problem child babysitting service. Mm -hmm. And I babysit um, one evening while the parents were home for free so they could see I could handle it. And I'd mm -hmm. show up with my little uh, notebook and slate and stylus and I'd write down bedtime routines, pediatrician's mm -hmm. number, emergency number, um, allergies, what exactly they wanted me to do. Did they want me to feed the kids, bathe the kids and get them into bed? Mm -hmm. Did they want me to, you know, to clean, you know, do some cleaning, clean the kitchen up, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I would tell them that I was the oldest of five and had been taking care of kids as soon as I was big enough to hold one and carry it around safely. <laughs> and that my mother was only, you know, a few doors down. And uh, therefore, if I needed any adult help, you know, mm -hmm. she was she was there. And when uh, I said, and I have references. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I did get jobs. Some of them were quite bizarre. Um, I had one family that had five children um, under the age of five. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had one lady that had two children, but the the baby was um, severely Down syndrome. And mm. um, then she had a very active two-year-old because he wasn't getting much supervision from her because he was she was so... Um, preoccupied with the mm -hmm. Down syndrome baby. And I had um, a senile grandmother <laughs> that I took care of in a wheelchair. Um, mm -hmm. and, a, and a mentally delayed little girl who was nonverbal, um, blind. Um, nice. Children that other sitters wouldn't, wouldn't take. Mm -hmm. That's why I adver advertised myself as problem. You know, uh -huh. I would handle children that if you can't get a sitter, let's let's talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I would come over with my notebook and we would sit there and interview yep. each other. <laughs> All right. So what other jobs did you do? Okay, that was my first one. I, I earned for most of the neighborhood back in those days right. before permanent press. Nice. Um, shirts and stuff mm -hmm. um, for working men and and. Uh, that kind of thing. And I uh, I was uh, on night desk at my grandparents' motel in, in the, on Sunset Strip. Nice. Um, primarily just answering the phone and, you know, right. um, if anything came up that I couldn't handle, um, there was a a, a, a wannabe actor who mm -hmm. um, had a free room to be on call at night, but they wanted someone at the at the desk who could summon him if it was necessary. Nice. And mm -hmm. uh, so I did that, and then in college, I was a I was subcontracted by the voc rehab department to work with people who were newly blinded or had an immediate need for some assistance because they sent their um, instructors out of Sacramento 
and there was nobody to serve my county that actually lived there. So I did that. And um, then my first paid job that was a full-time job was as a a temporary um, entry-level social worker. I got that by being smart alecky. <laughs> I walked I into Santa, San Jose uh, County Welfare Office and I said, do you have any entry-level social work position? She says, nope, uh, Governor Reagan has um, put a stop on any new hires, so no, we don't have any. Or no, she just, first she said, no, we don't have any. And I said, oh, I guess you've got your token Indian. And I turned around to walk out. And she said, no, wait a minute, come back. Because the government at that time had a program of dispersal of mm-hmm. Native peoples, and they were paying them, you know, a couple of the hundred dollars here or a thousand dollars there to move to a city. And they said mm-hmm. they would help them find work and jobs and stuff, but they wanted people to leave the reservations. And they wanted us to disperse and mingle with the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. And so yep. I ended up with a caseload of 100 families because there were only two of us there that had um, at least a bachelor's degree. My boss wow. had a master's. And then we had two aides that only had AA degrees. So they couldn't do some of the things like go to court or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were some some things that you had to be a qualified social worker to do. And after your social work job, what did you do then? Um, when my um, unused codes, that's how they hired me, was giving me codes for people that were out on maternity leave or uh-huh. um, long-term illness-related, you know, leave or whatever. Um so my paycheck went all over the building and I'd have to hunt for it (laughs) (laughs) because it was on somebody else's code. Um, Then I would, uh, I volunteered and did um, aid work in three different classrooms in San Jose, one with uh, mobility impaired children, one with mentally delayed children and one with blind children. And, That kept me from being totally bored out of my tree. But my husband and I were walking around San Francisco and he says, hey, there's an action office. You want to go join the Peace Corps? And I said, yeah. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) he was discouraged because he was in a a school district with declining enrollment. So every, Mm -hmm. every spring they would let him go and they'd say, well, we've got enough kids. Or it was kind of a lottery system. If they right. had fewer kids, um, they needed fewer teachers. So um, he never knew if he was going to be rehired in the fall. And so that was in June. Um, I We put in our applications and I got my first call in September. He'd already started back to school. Um mm-hmm. And I was dragging my heels about going back to grad school because I was tired of school. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, they offered me a position at the Christofelden Blind Admission in um, uh, it. Oh shoot! 
Yemen. That's which is nice. The Republic, the Republic of Yemen. <coughs> uh -huh. And they're, I, they're and in the news these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, she said, "So, are you interested?" And I said, "Well, um, can I have?" A little bit of time to talk it over with my husband and, and see. And she said, Oh, wait, we'll take him as an un unassigned spouse. And I said, Okay, but you know, I don't even know where this place is. And she uh, says, Well, I'll hold. And I said, No, I mean, like, call me back Monday. <laughs> so we had the weekend to go to the library and find out what we could uh -huh. about Yemen uh -huh. and living on a school compound. I wouldn't really get out to see much of the country. And the average right. temperatures were like 120. They were. <laughs> they are. And uh, I would have to wear a, a, a burqa right. if right. I left because they were very conservative. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, this does not sound like much fun. So <laughs> Not a Deanna sort of place. So when she called back, on Monday, she said, oh, I have a second offer for you. How would you like Western Samoa in the Pacific? And I'm thinking, camels, deserts, burkas, palm trees, yeah. beaches. So <laughs> that's what I signed up for. And I bet that was actually fun. I, I, I've heard that, that Samoan people are really amazing. They're, they are lovely people. Right. But they have a very male-dominated society. So uh -huh. I, and we were instructed as Peace Corps volunteers that we were required to keep the worm's eye view. We were not supposed to make any ripples. We were supposed right. to live as the people did and dress as the people did. And have the same kind of housing and um, not not be too American. Right. So <laughs> the, the person I was assigned to was the president of the Blind Association. And he, um, they had gotten five acres donated by the government to start a school for the blind. 10 years before they had done wow. a survey and have found about 30 children. And, but that was 10 years ago and nobody even knew if there were children because they had kind of stalled out. They built one, basically three room house on the land, but that mm -hmm. was all. And then Leaky Crichton was the president that, that term and he was a blind man with a sighted wife and I think about five children and two nieces that lived in that three bedroom house or oh that three room house not three bedroom a main room and two smaller rooms right. and then there was a back area that had a toilet and a kitchen side by side with concrete right. floors so that was just it it was you know, um, so yeah, they had electricity, they had a refrigerator, and I was cleaning type on some sort of printing press that they had been 
donated, trying right, to figure right. out if I could make it work. And um, he was sitting at the table with his back to the refrigerator at about four mm-hmm. feet. And he yells, Tiana, South, you know, that come. <laughs> yeah, oh, my goodness. And I said, yes, Vicky, what is it you need? And he said, get me some ice water. And I'm thinking, all you have to do is stand up, turn around, and take three yeah. steps, and you could get it. So I walk past him. I get the ice water pitcher out. I bring it to the table. I go get a glass from the cupboard. I put it on the table. And I said, you know, Leaky, if you spoke to a girl like that in America, she'd take this water and pour it over your head. <laughs> and he thought that was uproariously <laughs> funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a very tough thing to be meek and mild and sweet. Um, but I could do it in that I came from a cultural background where you showed respect right. to your elders. Yep. Yep. And as a young girl, you know, dealing with a middle-aged man with authority, he worked at the local newspaper, mm-hmm. which was pretty good considering he'd been blinded as a as a boxer in his 20s. Right. Um, but he knew how to type and he could write articles for the for the local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Now your husband your husband came with you, is that right? Yes. They And what were, did what did uh, he do? He was initially going to work at the Agricultural College, mm-hmm. um, helping a Dutch um, scientist work on a pest problem among uh, mm-hmm. the uh, coconut groves that they produce coconut oil mm-hmm. from. Nice. And he was very interested in it because he was a biology major with a chemistry minor, and he had mm-hmm. done um, studied. Um, entomology in particular was a fascination of his. Mm -hmm. So it looked like a good fit. But when he realized that I would be given no respect, whatever, in dealing with government people and, you know, organizational stuff, that he offered to be my administrator for the school. Nice. So he became, in in essence, the principal. I was the one staff. <laughs> there you go. So that put him in the position of being fundraiser and um, planner. And I mm-hmm. worked with two um, nuns that the Catholic Church lent me because my language was not up to the point where I could deal with children who didn't speak English. Right. So they were... Um, given to me on a lease from the Catholic Church so I could teach them how to work with the visually impaired so that they might help sisters that, you know, were elderly and perhaps losing vision. So, Excellent. Uh, Excellent. I, so yeah, that was so once beginning. you got back from Western Samoa, then what happened? Um, let's see. When we first got back... I was going to stay home because our first child was born while we were in Samoa. Mm -hmm. And I'd also adopted one of my students who was in a vulnerable position. So I came home with an infant and a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old blind child and a a, um, six-week-old baby. (laughs) 
Nice. And uh, so we his we went to Oregon because his grandfather wrote a letter asking us to come and said he'd bought a house that we could live in next to him because mm-hmm. he thought his wife was starting to show signs of dementia and he needed our help. So we went and um, then I started getting my experience as a caregiver for seniors, um, right. helping him care for his <laughs> wife and then later for him. Right. And um, I became a La Leche League instructor mm-hmm. and taught breastfeeding and childcare with other nice. women. I grew a garden. I uh, made the little girls' clothes on a sewing machine. I canned and dried fruit and did whatever I could to make it as inexpensive to live for us so we could live on mm-hmm. her salary. And then eventually, when uh, Cassio was getting old enough to, to start kindergarten, I was thinking, okay, mm-hmm. it's time for me to look for work. So I started applying when I would, you know, hear ads on the radio or mm-hmm. whatever. And I was getting nothing but a lot of flack. Um, <laughs> I got the distinct impression that when I walked in for a job interview, one time I never got past the receptionist because I walked mm-hmm. in. I was applying for a job to um, fill out work orders for repairs during storms and stuff at the electric company. Right. Mm-hmm. To answer the phone and, you know, send crews out. Right. So I walk in and she says, well, how will you fill out the forms? And I said, well, um, I can do what I did when I was a caseworker is I will make a template of the form and right. I will make sure that I always put them in the drawer with the, you know, the, the, the one end of the, the printed side up and the, <laughs> the top of the form. Right. Yeah. You know, in the order I want to put it in my typewriter and I will use the template to know how many spaces over to space for the date, the, you know, the yep. time, whatever needs to go on that form. I will memorize this and I will fill up the form. And she said, well, how will you answer a multi-line phone? And I said, well, I could use a light probe. That right. will tell me which line is ringing. And she said, well, what do you know about electricity? And I said, your your ad said that you needed someone to answer phones and fill out forms. It didn't say that you had to be an electrician <laughs> or an engineer. Exactly. And she got real happy. And she said, well, we'll call you. <laughs> and of course, she didn't. Of course, she didn't. So I was getting frustrated. So I told Curtis, you know, I get interviews because I score high on exams, but I walk Mm -hmm. into an office that's maybe looking for a parole officer. They see this little girl with long hair who looks about maybe 20. Right. (laughs) Even (laughs) though I'm approaching 30, Mm -hmm. Um, that, um, they're not going to trust me because they don't think I can do the job. They don't realize that I was the smallest in my family. And I wrote her right. on three younger brothers and a younger sister right. while my mother was working, you know, and that if you get all, you get 
to college at all when you're from the res and you you know are successful and get your degree you've got to have creativity determination you do you honestly learn to handle people because you know it wasn't unusual for example a client to come in furious at my boss at the welfare department yelling and screaming because his his you know welfare check didn't come and i would mm-hmm. you know say excuse me lower your voice please you're making my guide dog nervous and i wouldn't want either one of you to get hurt and he would sit down i'd say sit in that chair across from me explain to me in a normal tone of voice what your problem is and i'll do my damnedest to fix it nice and i'd get him calm down and sitting down and explaining that that Mm -hmm. uh, they said he hadn't put in his income report for that month i said okay so what i need to do is get you reinstated but you need to fill out that form every month because it's a rule. And if you don't, the same thing's going to happen next month. And now you're going to be late on your rent and you're going to be out of food because you don't have your food stamps. So I can get you some, you know, some uh, referral to a food bank. I can get mm-hmm. you this and that and the other, you know, this is mm-hmm. what I'll do. But it may take a week or more to get the paperwork to go all the way through the system and for a check to come. Mm-hmm. And so I would handle it, even though mm-hmm. he was big and scary and mad. Yep. yep. <laughs> and so I really felt I had the skills to do anything I made my mind up to do. So I said, look, you know, we go to... uh the take and pick piece. It was uh, Papa John's back then. Papa John's, mm-hmm. their second store was in the town where we were working and living, you know, at the time mm-hmm. where Curtis was, was working. And um, so I called them up and asked what it would cost to uh, purchase a franchise. And mm-hmm. they told me, and I said, okay, I, you know, let me look at our situation and um come out and 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 meet my family and me and we'll talk about what if what you are offering for that amount of money and mm-hmm. um then i went and um sold some jewelry mm-hmm. because i needed 20 percent of the cost of the franchise which they advertised as a key turn operation. So they would train you, get you all set up with suppliers, all that stuff. Of course. So um, I went to the, uh, sent Kurt to the bank to, uh, we wrote up a pro forma, took it to mm-hmm. the bank. The guy bought it and said, yeah, we can, we can make the loan because the ring I sold was actually from Kurt's uh, great grandmother. And wow. it was a ring that, um, had a huge diamond in it that I could never wear because, first of all, it would look really funny on my small hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we had two daughters, so it wasn't like I was going to, you know, split it up. And I thought, well, this exactly. is for their, for their future anyway. And what do I need with, with a, uh, you mm-hmm. know, three carat diamond? <laughs> well, of course, when you sell it to a jeweler, they pay you 
wholesale price. So it didn't bring what it would have brought if they had sold the ring to somebody. Exactly. But it was the seed money I needed to get that 20% to purchase the franchise. And once the bank had that, they put up the 80%. And so then the people show up at my house and I feed them dinner (laughs) and operate in my own kitchen, in my own house. And we talk about what kinds of equipment I would need. Because I said, obviously, you know, I can't use standard restaurant equipment. So um, I went and investigated, found a talking cash register, found a talking bill identifier that cabled to the talking cash register. You mm-hmm. ran the bill in, in this shoebox, big-sized affair, and it spit mm-hmm. it back out, told it what it was, signaled the cash register, the drawer popped out, and the cash register told you what change you needed to give. So that's all nifty neat. And then I went through axiades and places like that to get tactile scales that I could use. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I had my piece all worked out so that when I went out to their, um, their store office to be trained, um, I went through all the training of assembling the pizza, you know, making Mm -hmm. You know, doing all the different things that needed to be done. And I was, you know, so I make my very first pizza. I walk it over to the customer at the counter after wrapping it on the wrapping machine and Mm -hmm. um, hand it over. And he says, oh, that looks really nice, sweetheart. I'm like, crap, here we go again. (laughs) 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 The cute little blind girl. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, that was, you know, once we were in business, again, Curtis stopped teaching and came over to be the business manager. Right. I trained the staff, did the ordering, um, and worked the evening shift when we were the busiest. Mm-hmm. Um, trained the people that, you know, did the, the morning prep of running the slicers and uh, cheese graters and <laughs> all the rest of the stuff that needed to be done. How long did you guys run the franchise? About 15 years. Uh, we wow. Went, um, until our youngest was out of high school. Um, so, And we owned two shops by the time we quit. I ran the, the Grants Pass store, which is the store we started with. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, about two years in, we had to move to a larger location. And um, by the time we'd left and sold out um, my store, which was the original store, um, grossed a million. Of course, that's that's gross, not you know when you get the overhead out. It's <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, I was owner operator of of two pizza taken bake pizza franchises, and our franchise was bought out by Murphy's Pizza Company, and now is pretty much all over as Papa Murphy's taken baked pizza. That's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. That is pretty amazing. Well, we have been very selfish and have been talking to you all evening. And I I think it's time we checked with Miss Marianne to see if there were any questions. Okay. Then I'll, then I'll skip. I did. I taught uh, adult education classes for Mm -hmm. newly visually impaired in Colorado Springs, ran Mm -hmm. a fair trade gift shop. When I landed here in, 
in Missouri. I became right. an independent living specialist at an independent living center and a legislative liaison for them. And nice. Now I am a 24-7 caregiver, <laughs> taking care well, of Curtis. And that may be the toughest job of all. Yeah, some days it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Excellent. Miss Marianne, do we yes, have some questions? Yes, we have Linda. Linda, Linda. Fast. Linda, you may unmute. From Massachusetts. Yes. Also one of one of Leslie's best students. Really nice. Hello. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, Melody. Uh, hold on, let me get Melody. There you go, Melody. Hey, I, I'm sorry, I didn't raise my hand. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is didn't. raised, sweetie. I'm yep. sorry, I had yep. my speech off. Oh, it is raised. Uh, and yeah. I turned go ahead, on I'll, I'll lower your Thank hand. You. Sure. Yep. Okay, but I'm enjoying your presentation. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Linda. Thank you. Okay. Do you have, do you have um, a question, Miss Linda? No, she raised her oh. hand by mistake when she was trying to <laughs> do it. something else. Miss Melody. Okay, we have or somebody uh, else. Who? Yep, Melody, okay. there you go. I as far as the caregiving goes, any experience that you've had going to your husband's medical appointments when you had your children, when you adopted, can you talk about if you've had um, and also as a caseworker, because this is what I aspire to do, one-on-one -on -one caregiving and patient advocacy due to prior experience. Um, and I'm about 4'10", so I look a lot younger than my age of 38. Did you face any kind of patronization, uncertainty, being told you flat out couldn't because of your appearance and that you're blind or that you have a guide dog, anything like that? Could you speak to more of no, that? No, they oh. never really did that, that they would give other excuses. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Like, um, I went to meet with some friends who were going through the process of adopting, and they wanted um, some some backup. So this was when I was living in Colorado, and so we met for lunch with another couple. We walk into a Chinese restaurant that's maybe a quarter full, and the the gal at the entrance says, "Do you have a reservation?" <laughs> they're not going to tell me I can't come in with my guide dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but obviously, who makes reservations at a Chinese restaurant at lunchtime? It's only got about, you know, a quarter yeah. of their space being used. Mm -hmm. So I just shrugged and said, okay, let's go have Indian food. There's another restaurant in the same mm -hmm. complex. So we went there and they were very nice. What I find works is never lose your temper, never take it personally, because the problem is in their head. It's not you. You know who you are. You know what you can do. So never let them shake your confidence or get you to show that you're upset, because it only gives people that have a power drive need more encouragement to be as nasty as they possibly can so i kill them with, with kindness or i make them laugh both of those things work miss marianne yep Area code 770 hi this is janet i love the hi. killing with kindness and making them laugh 
but your answer to, about being an electrician was really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's my inner snark. Mostly I keep her under control. She just makes jokes in my head to make me laugh. <laughs> well, I just have to say you sound so up all the time. And I've been a caregiver. We had three and my 100-year-old aunt we just buried in February. Uh, but what have you ever been down in your life? And if you did, how did you come out of that pit or what brought you well, out of it? I've missed two ACB conventions, okay? I signed up for both of them, found roommates, made transportation. A year ago, when we were supposed to be in Omaha, I had to undo it all when the seeing eye called and said, we've got a dog for you. My beautiful <laughs> shepherd died in mm-hmm. April, and I was still crushed over that. Um, he died of a kind of blood cancer that gives you no warning. It's called a... It's awful. Yeah. So, um, for me, having that furry face in my corner has always been a thing. And I told my trainer... Okay, I now have vertigo, I have arthritic knees, and I'm not as fast a walker as I used to be, Um, but I do need to be the point person that catches the paratransit or walks 20 minutes to catch a city bus and gets things done because I don't know how much longer my husband will be able to drive. Right. And so I need to get my game on now while I can still leave him for 18 days to to mm-hmm. be a retread and get a new guide dog. Right. And I said, so I need a dog that patterns, a dog that is a thinker, because if my vertigo is bad or I'm starting to get overheated and ready to pass out, I need a dog that isn't going to mess up because I'm inattentive. Mm-hmm. And and I said, and I also need a dog that can make me laugh every day because right. I don't have a lot to laugh about these days. And so I got my yellow yo-yo on a leash who is both cautious but confident. He's a little bit of a, of a problem child in that he was terminally cute as a puppy. So he thinks everybody wants to meet a little yellow Labrador and have them in his lap or, you know, in their laps. That's the first thing he did when they brought him into my room. My trainer walked to the door. He let him off leash. He raced across the room, jumped into my lap and started washing my face. And I called out to my trainer. He's just saying, please, please take me. Get me away from that grumpy man. And, of course, my trainer was (laughs) laughing. Um It was true that this little dog was trained by an older woman with grandchildren, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, with his puppy raiser. Then he was trained by a young woman who um, left to take a job she could do at home because she had a new baby. So um, he was definitely a ladies' man. (laughs) Nice. And that's the wonderful thing about um, the process of getting a good match that, the minute you pick up the harness and start working, the communication starts to build. And that's something I wasn't willing to give up. 
he may be my last dog. Who knows what I'll be like when I'm in my 80s and <laughs> ready for my next Can it be dog. a good question? Yep. Yeah. Maybe by then question. they'll have um, AI controlled robo dogs. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Miss <laughs> well, Moran, do we have more hands? I'd like to hear you. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. No. Uh, oh, yep. Nora just put her hand up. Um, just give me one second. Hard. I'm sorry. One minute, Nora. Sorry. Okay, Nora, there you go. <clears throat> yeah, hello. Hi. Hey, Nora. Yeah, hello. Hi, Janet. Uh, my question, I have a question. Uh, how were things were like uh, when you were going to school? Did anybody uh, tease you or bully you and all this kind of bullying and all that stuff when you were growing up? Yes, <laughs> of course. But I learned very, very young that you never show fear. You never show you they've got you on the run. <laughs> and you never let them know that you can be victimized. I mean, you know, I've had kids push my head down when I was getting a, a water out of a drinking fountain to push my face into the running water. Mm. And I would turn around, take off my shoe, and throw it at him. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, then I'd go find my shoe because, like echolocation, I'd have a general idea where it was. Yeah. So I really always tried to be brave whenever I was scared, and a lot of times I would pretend I was somebody else. I'd think of somebody I admired at school that had seemed to have it all together. And I'd pretend to be her. What would Francie do in a situation like this? Well, Francie had a smart mouth, so I'd come up with a quip or a, you know, comment to put them in, in their place. Um, make a joke. Um, make them feel dumb for teasing a blind girl. Uh, you know, because they would do things like grab my lunch and hold it up out of my reach because I was small. Mm-hmm. And, Thank you. You know, I would step on their foot, stomp on it, <laughs> give me my lunch. <laughs> you know, I would do whatever it took to get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. Or I would use sarcasm. Oh, you must be really feeling big and, and so powerful when you can hold that up out of where I can't reach. But it, I can warn you now, it's only peanut butter and jelly. You know? Yep. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Miss Nora. You're welcome. Thank you. So, no, no other hands currently. Yep. So, you, you said a word that's very near to me, and that's vertigo. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Isn't it fun? You get uh, all the benefits of being drunk and don't have the hangover. Yeah, there, there's right. Is yours positional? Yes. And mine's, mine's non-positional. Uh, mine uh. has to do with um, a lot of the things you do when you're caring for a guide dog, like buckling their harness, you bend down, um, putting on pressure socks for a person to keep mm -hmm. them from getting phlebitis in their feet and legs. You know, you have to be in a position to be on the floor, right? which arthritic knees don't like. 
mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this stuff, but I do what I can. And I do have exercises that I do every morning to get those little floaters back where they belong. And um, that helps. But when I'm tired or overheated, it gets really bad. And it's like walking on a boat deck. <laughs> so know. do you find having a guide dog helps you with those moments? As yes. opposed to if you were doing the same thing and as a cane user at that moment? Yes, because he acts as a balance, a balance point. I don't put any weight on him. But I can steady myself by putting my hand down on his back. I think a guide dog absolutely helps with balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's learned what kinds of things. It only took me falling down twice <laughs> for him to figure out, oh, I better tell her that the, the, the sidewalk is all canted up right here. So he starts to slow down until he's sure that I understand that that's where there is a you know, a two inch mm-hmm. lift in the pavement that I could catch my foot on. So have you found in 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 your life that and, and I don't know if you can even tell the difference, that 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 there is prejudice that's different for someone like you who is uh, of Indian extraction rather than prejudice um as, as for you as a blind person? It's it's a little weird um, because I have copper in my uh, now silver in my hair, mm-hmm. and because I'm fairer, I'm an. Uh, my mother calls me Ivory Olive, so they mm-hmm. know I'm not white, but they don't know what I am. So I've Got been it. asked if I was Vietnamese, if I was from the Caribbean, if I was Hawaiian, if mm-hmm. in Samoa I would be asked if I was an Afakasi, half Samoan. Mm-hmm. Um, some, if you're used to Southwestern Native Americans, might recognize me um, because Apache, Navajo, all in that area have similar faces to mine. Um, so they will recognize me, and they'll walk up to me on the street and say, "You Indian?" And I'll say, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> you know what you need, rather. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. because if they're asking some a stranger on a street, that's not usual. That usually means they're mm-hmm. in trouble. They have a question, they have a concern, and they're looking for help. Um, but, you know, kind of like they, when you remember when they were saying wear a safety pin to let um, Muslims and and um, yes. People, um, after 9-11, wear a safety pin to let people know it's okay to sit next to you on the bus or right. um, that you were safe. It's mm-hmm. kind of like that. So my face lets people know they're safe with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also had elements of like waiting to have alcohol shot into the nerves of my face to stop the pain of the glaucoma in the eye that had no no vision at all and hadn't right. for years but the doctor wouldn't enucleate it because it was still you know it was still an eye <laughs> it didn't yeah. matter that it was giving me such severe pain that i was nauseous <laughs> that yeah. day. i mean i i ended up i ended up 
getting both of my eyes taken out for just that reason. Yeah. And I had no vision left, but I had glaucoma that was just was excruciating. Yeah. Yeah. So there I am, yep. you know, sitting there waiting for this procedure that my doctor mm -hmm. insists will take away the pain. He didn't tell me it would make me look like a stroke victim for six weeks, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm sitting there and this old couple across the room from me are sitting there and he's he's saying to her, I think she is. You think she's a nigger? And I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> I don't need this today. I'm about ready to throw up from the pain. Uh huh. And, you know, the nurse called me, so I got up and just walked out of the room with my guide dog. But, um, you know, if I had not been in so much pain, I would have said, answered his question and said, no, I'm not African-American. I'm Apache and Ojibwa. And yep. that is who I was born. And if I were African-American, I would still be an American citizen, still be a mm -hmm. person of value and yep. be who I am. And because I was born this way. Mm -hmm. You, on the other hand, choose to be ignorant and then walked out of the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so when I have to, I can get nasty, but I don't let that side come out very often because a lot of times the person that's being offensive absolutely doesn't recognize that they are and wouldn't understand my point at all. No, I think that's, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. So, so if you had to summarize and say, is there is is there a particular thing that that I've learned living for the seventy five years that I have so far? Do you know what that might be? Cut people slack. Accept yep. them from who they are. If you want to be accepted for who you are, grant them the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if they're bipolar, if they're, you know, whatever it is, treat them with dignity yep. and treat them as human beings, even if you don't want them to be your best friend. Um, and go through the world trying to make it a little bit better place for your having passed through it instead of taking out your frustration and anger on people who maybe having a bad day to begin with. And that's why they're abrupt and rude at the, <laughs> when they're waiting mm -hmm. on you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yep. if you can, if you can make a baby giggle in the, in the shopping line, instead of whining and crying and fussing, um, do it. Give that mom a break. Who's getting yep. tense and upset. Um, cut people slack and treat them the way you'd want to be treated. Mr. Brian, final question from you, and 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 then we'll ask um, Deanna if she'll go over her two books and where people can get them once more. My, uh, again, the longer we live as human beings, the more complicated we become. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's in that complexity that I find interest in people. Uh, I've known our guest this evening for decades and i still learn things about her i still learn by listening to the stories people tell about things that have occurred in their lives and i'm enriched by 
all of that experience. I want to thank you for sharing your life with us this evening. And my biggest question for you is, is there another book in you? And if so, what would it look like? Um, I've got two that'll probably be children's books or three um, more because they're easier and faster to write. My editor has been pressing me for a full biography, but I'm not ready for that. There's a lot of pain and darkness in anybody's life. And certainly... That's why I haven't written mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, I had a college professor that gave me a 10-year writer's block, um, an English professor who once took something I wrote as he was passing out papers, and he um, tore it in half and threw it in the trash basket in front of me where I was sitting and said that I wrote like uh, an adolescent, that nobody could be full of so much Pollyanna tripe, and that he wanted my my anger, my pain, my sorrow, because nobody that had my conditions of being both a minority and disabled could be such a pangloss and go through the world saying it couldn't be better. You know, it's the best of all possible worlds. It is. Yeah, that's what Pengloss always it, said that in, is. in Candide. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so um so he never called me by name the rest of that semester that I had his class. He called me Pengloss. And I got to the point where it made me nauseous to have to write for him, but for me, I that's not my truth. My truth was there was much good in my life. There was much beauty in it. And there was much value in it. I took what I was given and I made the best. If you were a potter and you had the clay, you could make an ugly misshapen cup that would barely hold water. Or you can make a flower vase out of your life. There's enough there in that clay to make a life. You may yes. not be as beautiful, as smart, as talented as you would like to be, but even those people that seem to have it all don't. They wouldn't have so many of them having dr- drug issues and alcohol issues and multiple marriages and stuff. Right. If they had the inner balance and peace to know that they were making the world a better place for having passed that way. And since that's what my goal has always been, um, you know, that that's what I do. And it, and it has led to having a rich life with people I love and people who love me. And Brian, I just did the math. I think we've known each other 43 years. That's a while, huh? Wow. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. a while. that's about right. <laughs> I think that's about right. So you have you have a minute to tell people where they can find your books, Miss Deanna. Okay, um, they're available on Amazon um, as a Kindle ebook. Um, there is a print paperback, but of course that's not an accessible one. And there is um, it's also available through Smashwords, which is another producer of um, I would say like EPUB and written text. 
versions. But that the, but the EPUBs are, are easy, easily readable on lots of devices. So Yes, they are. Yep. And how do you spell the name of that place? S-M-A-S-H-W-O-R-D. Smashword. It's one word. And they've just joined the yeah, and they've just joined up with a another company, so I think they'll probably be in the process of changing names. Digital two or something like that. Yeah, but they'll still be Smashword. Miss Deanna, thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, it's really been exciting to get to know you better. I've learned an awful lot as well. Um, probably um, when you turn 80, we'll invite you back again because there's <laughs> still so much we haven't heard. Um, but thank you so much for being here. And thanks to the audience for being a part of Miss Deanna Quietwater Noriega's life. Good night.